yes, we have got an amazing show waiting for you right now, but you gotta know. It's gonna take 4,000, 4,000 new members to bring you a new season of Snap, and we're behind, way behind. So I'm asking, if you know in your soul that these stories matter, donate now at snapjudgment.org. Snap is pause the show. Pause it. No one else will do this. You will. Pause the show and donate whatever makes sense to you. Snapjudgment.org. Spread love one story at a time. Support Snap Judgment Storytelling. Snapjudgment.org. Thanks. When I was younger, and I was sick, I never wondered if there was such a thing as magic. Because my grandmother, she picked green, leafy magic from her garden. Brown and red and green magic from the trees, from the woods behind our house. She pressed it into a bowl, mashed it up with a rock, added black rum after she took a sip first. Granny lit three cigarettes at once, puffed between stretched lips. She blew smoke all over the bowl. Finally, she said, drink this. It stank bitter. I don't want it. It'll make you feel better, baby. Drank it. So I drank it and felt better. She made different drinks for the women. One to make someone go away. Another to make them come back. One mixed with pine needles if you wanted a baby. With St. John the Conqueror root. If you didn't. Granny, how's it work? Magic. Mama say magic is bad. Stuff ain't bad, baby. People bad. But can bad people do bad magic? Bad people can do most anything, baby. Today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present magic amazing stories from real people facing the inexplicable my name is Lynn Washington never put three lit cigarettes in your mouth unless you know exactly what you're doing when you're listening to Snap Judgment now we're going to get started on our bad magic episode with one of our most requested stories of all time. And it starts on the other side of the pond. Snap Judgment favorite, Jonathan Gobert, has a story. Stuart Sharp and his wife, Joe ran a pub in the English countryside where he lived with his mom and daughter. On the eve of the birth of his first son, Stuart and his wife already had a name for the baby picked out. Ben. But things went badly during Ben's delivery. And when we got to the hospital, um, she was in labour, and the doctor was there. It was, in those days, it was a very cold, frugal room, and she was lying on a slab like a lamb to the slaughter. It was a very strange environment. And the doctor was there, and suddenly he rushed past me out of the room, called the ambulance for the big centre in Leicester. Eventually, we managed to get her to the hospital, and... We didn't know at that point that Ben was already dead. Um, 
Joan. In, in, inside of her. Yeah. She'd had a uterus rupture. When they did deliver Ben, they actually caused so much damage to her, she nearly died as well. So my wife was nearly dead, Ben was dead. It was devastating. Wow. What did you do? We didn't know what to do. Stuart buried Ben in a shoebox-sized grave. The night of the funeral, he went to bed and had a dream. A dream that would change his life. And I was back at the graveside with Ben in the dream. I saw Ben rise from the coffin and sort of travel up towards the skies. And suddenly I started hearing this wonderful angelic music. And then I heard these angels came down and spoke to me. And one of the angels said to me, Ben is safe now. And in these circumstances, we always leave somebody a gift. And the gift for you is you will remember everything. And I could hear every single note of this piece of music. I heard everything. Now, can I just quickly yeah. stop you here and ask you, are you religious? No. Stuart? No. Did you no, 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 no. What did you think was going no. on? I just thought there was some great spiritual power that was going to guide me to do what I was meant to do from Ben's death. The music in Stuart's mind was so persistent, so urgent, that he decided to do something dramatic. He decided he had to devote the rest of his life to getting this music written and recorded, no matter what the cost. That meant leaving his wife and daughter and moving to London, despite having no formal musical training or musical talent. He waited a year to break the news to his wife and mother. It did not go well. She said, uh, look, you need therapy after what you've gone through. I understand. You need to go and talk to someone. And I said, I'll give you six months' notice, and in six months to the day, I'm going to leave for London. Of course, they both thought, sure. <laughs> and they just shrugged it off. Yeah, six months. Every month, I would say, five months to go, four months to go, a month to go, and they still thought it was a joke. And I said, listen, I'm serious. And when it came to the day of going and I got my little old Ford car and my squash bag, and I said, I'm going. And my wife was like, what? I was absolutely Because sure. there's a lot of people listening to this right now who are saying to themselves, you just abandoned your family, man. Absolutely. I know that. I know that. I said to her, through this dream, I will make you extremely happy. We will travel the world together. The girls will go to places and see things and get an education they couldn't have dreamed of. That actually made it worse. Yeah, because it sounds like the things you have to say to yourself to do something like leave your family. Yeah. It sounds like an excuse. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I left for London on that day. What did it feel like when you got into that car and started driving towards London? I felt I was going to do what I was destined to do. 
I expected that the voices, the angels, would tell me exactly what to do. So I had never been to London before. It was very miserable weather. I drove along this road. I just kept going round in circles. The traffic was very heavy. I pulled off the road and found a car park. And I just stopped in the car park. So well, I'll stay here. And it was a huge car park with garbage bins in the corner. So I parked in between the garbage bins and stayed there waiting for my next instruction. And? I didn't get one. Stuart lived in his car and Joe gave up waiting for him after six months. She divorced him. He stayed in London waiting for the voices to tell him what to do. He sold his car, he moved onto the streets, but the voices said nothing. Stuart fell into despair and moved into a hostel for the homeless. He'd lost everything. Everything except the angelic music in his head. And then he walked by the window of a second-hand shop and saw a guitar. And I'd only got a few pounds, whatever it was, in my pocket, and I said, this is all I've got. Is it possible you could drop the price? A very nice lady said, not really. What do you want it for, anyway? I said, well, look, I'm going to compose a symphony and I need it to get the notes out so I can give it to someone else. And she eventually said, OK, you can have it. What would you do with it? I took it back to the hostel. I used to sit in this little, tiny little room, which was full of cockroaches next to the kitchen. Cockroaches crawl over me every night, just trying to figure out this guitar. So while I'm fiddling around with these notes, I start being able to pick out some of the melody line on the guitar. Yeah, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. Yeah, I couldn't write the notes down, but what I did, I went back to the Townsend's shop and I bought from them for a very few pence a very old tape recorder. And I took it back and started playing all the melodies and stuff into this tape recorder until I'd filled two hours of this tape, everything I could hear. And so I thought, well, now I've got something I can work with. One day, Stuart took his guitar and recorder and sat himself in front of the BBC studios close to the homeless shelter to try his luck at getting noticed. And while I was sitting there, quite a few people walked by and thought I was begging, but I wasn't. And one gentleman came by and he just looked at me and didn't say anything. He walked on and he stopped 50 metres later and turned around and came back and said, what are you doing with the guitar? Are you a busker? I said, no, no, I'm writing a symphony. Oh, you're a composer? I said, well, sort of. He said, well, have you got a score? I said, no, I, I can't write music. And he went, how are you going to write a symphony then? I said, because I've got it on tape and I can play little bits of it. He said, where are you living? And I said, well, I'm living rough, actually, and I'm living in a hostel for the homeless and just bumming around, really. I'm looking for the next stage in my development of this great story. He said, I'm a jazz musician. Look, why don't you come stay with me for a couple of hours? I'll take it back to my house. I've got a piano. Let me hear your melodies, and I'll see what I can do on the piano, so if I can extemporise it for you. So I said, well, that's really kind of you. And he took me back to his house. His wife was absolutely furious. She said to him, are you going completely crazy? This guy could be a murderer. We've got a child, We've got a baby, and you're bringing him... Well, he was not going to stay long, just, just for a few hours. Just kindly make him a bit of soup or something. And I stayed there for six weeks. The first night, I started playing the melody, and he started feeling it on the piano. 
And in a couple of hours, what we had done on this piano, and I'm telling you, Jonathan, was phenomenal. The jazz musician was Anthony Wade. And yes, this is actually audio from those original recordings in his house back in 1982. By the end of those six weeks, Stewart and Anthony had pretty well scored the entire symphony. Anthony said it was so good, it could make Stewart rich and famous and should be played by the London Philharmonia Orchestra. That was the good news. My only advice to you is go out and make a fortune because you will have to pay for it all yourself. And, and how much? Well, I mean, we're talking about over a million pounds. A million pounds. Because it's not just going to the Philharmonia Orchestra. It's explained to me, you're going to need orchestrators, you're going to need arrangers, you're going to need the best studios in the world, you'll need a rehearsal orchestra, you'll need this, you'll need that, and you'll need the other. And before you do all that, we would have to work on it together to make an electronic version of it. And for that, you will need to hire a studio, you need to hire computers, and me will be very expensive, and so on and so forth. So here you were, at the cusp of realising your dream, Oh, and by the way, Mr. Homeless Man, you're going to have to pay a million pounds to do it. What did you think when he said that to you? I was excited. You asked me to make a million pounds, and I'll go and make a million pounds. He started off by getting a job at the Homeless Centre. Then he got various sales jobs working exclusively on commission, something for which he showed an uncanny ability. He spent years flipping houses for the local council, and then he started doing it for himself. Many houses, and 15 years later, he had saved one million pounds. Then I tracked Anthony Wade down, and I said to him, are you ready to go? He said, go where? A project. He couldn't quite work out what was going on, so I took my bank statement with me. I said, right, you gave me the answer of what to do. Here is the money. Let's go. How long did it take to complete? It took five years working every single day to do an electronic version of the whole symphony. Once I got all that done, then I presented it to the conductor of the Philharmonia. With the tape, with a score, please listen to this. And? He was not too impressed because how could a homeless person with no musical ability write a score that would be good enough for the London Philharmonia Orchestra? And he said to me, it's not a question of money, Stuart. It's a question of credibility. The London Philharmonia Orchestra are not going to record basically rubbish. You hadn't even listened to it. You hadn't listened to it, no. And then a, a few weeks later, I got a call from him at midnight, and he was crying on the phone. He said, Stuart, I have just listened to your tape. I have been blubbering for the last five minutes. It is wonderful. I cannot believe it. I'm so sorry I didn't listen to it before. The reason I didn't listen to it before was because I thought, how can I break the bad news to you after all you've gone through? But now I can see that with the London Philharmonia recording it, this will be one of the most magnificent things we've ever done. Stuart needed to find even more money. It needed to be scored again. The orchestra had to be booked years in advance. And then, one day, the conductor of one of the greatest orchestras in the world turned to Stuart and said, Now it is right for the London Philharmonia Orchestra. Okay, so the day comes of the recording. Describe the room to me. It was a 
very big room to enclose 80 musicians. It was a big recording studio in London, massive. Oh my God, is this really going to happen? It's the sound, they're all tuning their instruments. They're all so. tuning their instruments, and the hairs on the back of my neck are going standing up. So I don't, I don't know what to expect. I don't know whether it's going to be what I heard in my head or something else. When the moment came when the conductor stood before them... When the one came down, and as they started to play... It was exactly what I heard in my head. The trumpet call for the angels, the voices, the choir, because I had a big choir as well. I had a massive choir. It wasn't just an orchestra. It was a big choir joining in. You know. It was exactly going in sync, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, is that the orchestra doing it, or is that what is my head? It was so strange. And when they'd finished... Suddenly I heard this noise, it was like applause. And the conductor said, Stuart, come over here. This ovation is for you. For me? It's hard to know if the musicians of the London Philharmonia were applauding for the music, or Stuart's journey, or both. Nevertheless, they gave him a standing ovation. Alan Wilson, the conductor of the London Philharmonia, is quoted as saying, I had to admit I was stunned. I've never seen any orchestra anywhere in the world give any composer an ovation like that before. Stewart's symphony has never been performed. It's never been distributed by a major record label, but he had achieved his goal. Stewart had gotten the music out of his head and recorded by one of the greatest orchestras in the world. What's the first thought that went the through your head? The first thought that went through my head I can't wait to send this to my ex-wife. I can't wait to send it to her because it's so beautiful. I'm sure it won't hurt her because... And she knew the journey I'd had and I sent the CD to her and I got a call from her the next day. I didn't know what she was going to say. And she said, Stuart, uh-oh. I played your Angelus Symphony and I've had the windows open and I've played it full blast. I have to tell you, it is magnificent. And I cried. Let me ask you. You created a lovely family. You had a terrible tragedy, but your family was still intact. Then you had this dream that came to you that, frankly, could have been psychosis, for all we know. If you had to do this all over again, would you do it the same way? I didn't have any choice. You've been given a gift, go and use it. So there's no choice for me. Was it worth it? I don't know. Thanks for sharing your story, Stuart. We'll have a link so you can hear Stuart's symphony for yourself at snapjudgment.org. Our Sherpa was the amazing Jonathan Robert, original score for that piece, original by Pat Masidi Miller and Leon Morimoto. It was edited by Anna Sussman. Now, maybe you want to know how to tell your own story. 
Maybe you're looking for the final tips that will help you in the bar, in the workplace, help you finish that novel, that screenplay, that radio piece. Well, it all starts on the page. If you want the best advice Snap producers can give you each and under three minutes, my storyteller friend, you are in luck. Download the video. Get the video at snapjudgment.org or get the Snap Judgment Live legendary video download featuring the top storytellers in the world, including Jen Culver, Don Reed, Jamie DeWolf, Josh Healy, more, so much more. Waiting for you right now at snapjudgment.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the bad magic episode. Our next story comes to us from a man looking to understand the power of faith and magic and belief from a very personal perspective. Snap Judgment. Okay, so a lot of you know that I grew up in this crazy religious cult, right? And when I left that organization, I wanted to tell the people still involved, I wanted to tell them a lot of things. I wanted to let them know that Santa Claus was probably not the devil. I wanted them to understand that white people did not form the lost tribe of Israel and that Jesus probably wasn't going to be here next week. But I had this kind of internal conflict because as much as I wanted to preach, if that cult taught me anything, it's that you've got to take people where they are, that only when the student is ready will the teacher appear. So I was quite intrigued when I found someone who was willing to force the issue. This guy, this guy named Vikram Gandhi. I was born in New York and I grew up in New Jersey. Like me, Vikram had a rather strict religious upbringing. In his case, he was raised in a Hindu household. And as Vikram grew to manhood, he became interested in some of the teachers, the gurus of his faith. He became so interested, in fact, that he decided to make a film about them. I went and got a hug from the hugging saint, or, you know, I went and saw this one woman who just sat in a chair, she was an Indian woman, and people lined up in New York to not even give her a hug, like the hugging saint, but to actually just bow in front of her, and she didn't say a word. There was something about the artifice of the spiritual leader that seemed not authentic to me. And I thought, you know what, it would be really funny if I just became one of these people. I'll create a character online, like the Dalai Lama. There'll be, like, quotes on Facebook. He'll have a website, and you could buy books from him. Vikram named this new character his new self, Kumare. The basic character is me growing out a really long beard and not cutting my hair for, like, two years. I got a saffron-colored vest made, and then I got a bunch of sarongs, took off my shoes. The root of the Kumari voice is just this sound. Uh, I don't exactly know where that sound comes from, but it's just... Uh. And then everything sort of comes out of that. Um, and it's like, hello. When I met people as Kumari, I would say, hello, my name is Kumari. I am from a place in my mind. That place is called Alikash. 
every guru has to start somewhere. So Vikram had two of his producers pose as students of Kumare. They asked a woman named Tish Hagel if they could use her studios. And they organized yoga workshops around the Phoenix, Arizona area. And no joke, Kumari can do some real yoga, serious poses and stuff. He's super bendy. So he'd do that for a while. But then he'd just start making stuff up. We call this one a blue light meditation. And you look, focus, other person face into eyes, okay? Until you feel yourself inside other person, okay? Imagine that. <laughs> and in just a little bit of time, Kumari started drawing the notice of various spiritual seekers. I consider Kumari to be a living embodiment of the divine. There are so many gurus in India. I've seen many of them, they are just fake because they just want attention and maybe money and fame. But meeting Kumari, I thought he had the positive mind and attitude. So I think he's a real teacher. Kumari was very real to those around him, and the experience, to me, was actually very real as well. When you're living a sort of a double life in a way, and, and you realize the fictional or quote fictional version of you is so charismatic and so lovable to others, you wonder why you're not that person all the time. Oh, you are not average. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to know him even more. While the project may have started off as an elaborate prank, Kumari did, in fact, have something that he was trying to teach. My philosophy is the mirror philosophy. That is that all that you are seeing inside of me as a guru, you have inside yourself. That which you find divine in myself, you have inside. Therefore, you do not need a guru. You just simply need to find the guru inside yourself. Kumari eventually gained a core group of 14 disciples. They met regularly at his house. And the crazy thing is that the people who came, they came because they got something out of it. The experience with Kamari has affected my life, and I feel like it has changed my teaching. It's given me uh, the same thing that the students feel, that confidence. I will remember him from the day I die. I will tell my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids about this wonderful person that came into my life and changed me. Every day, Kamari's followers grew more and more deeply attached to the character that he pretended to be. What you have been thinking for last week about your life? I feel like I've been forcing my marriage to work for a long time and forcing and fighting. I don't even believe in marriage. I don't know. I don't want to be there. I want to go. Understand, this is a guy from New Jersey without any professional training, and he's fielding marriage questions. It was time to tell people who he really was. I could storyboard every scene, but whenever I tried to think about how the unveiling would go, 
you know, my, I just couldn't, I couldn't process it in my head. Kamari gathers his followers together for something he calls the unveiling. He's got to let people know the truth, but Kamari is nervous. He doesn't know how people are going to react upon discovering that they're part of someone else's game. Today is uh, the unveiling. At the unveiling, we uh, unveil our true self. To begin, I will reveal my true self. You see, I don't know if uh, I am who you think that I am. You see, he can't do it. The guru chickens out, but he can't get off that easily. So later, Kumari reassembles the flock and he tries another approach. So I made a video, um, and in the video, I talk to people as Kumari, and I tell everyone the story of how Vikram became Kumari. Hello, Gurus. By now, you must understand my teaching, that the external Guru is an illusion, that he only exists to help you find the truth, that the Guru is inside of you. So now, I would like to introduce you to the Guru inside of me. Right at the end of the video playing to everybody in a room, I walked out and presented myself clean-shaven in an American clothes, dressed like I normally dress. And, hello, uh, Gurus. Said hello. My, my name, name is Vikram. Vikram. And my ideal, and my self, ideal is self is Kumari. Wow. When you did that, what did your followers do? Well, um, there's a mixed reaction from people. Some people didn't stick around very long, and some people uh, stuck around to take photos and hug and relate ideas and, you know, um, to start a new friendship in a way with me. My name is Tish. I am the owner of a yoga studio where Kamari did filming for his project. In June, I get an invitation to a final farewell. And when we arrived late, uh, the unveiling had actually already happened. The producers would not let us go inside. They said, we want to talk to you before you go in, because you will be shocked when you go in. We just want you to understand that we have a clear message here and how much we appreciated your involvement and help and openness to bring these students to us. In order to expose the true guru, we have to kill the guru. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me what I'm going to see when I go in there. They seem very nervous. One of them would not make eye contact with me. So we walk in and sit down in the back. And there's bright lights. Everybody's very dressed up. And up at the top on the stage is Vikram. And I didn't recognize him at first. And then we did. And it was very, very clear to me. I was not going to spend one more minute of my life wasting my time with that. I was not going to help further his cause anymore by even staying in the room. 
The first two principles to practicing yoga have nothing to do with the yoga postures. And the very first one is called ahimsa, which is non-harming. And the second one is satya, truthfulness. And I stood out there and talked to the producers and I said, you guys have violated the first two foundational principles that are so fundamental to practicing yoga by harming so many people and doing nothing but lying from the minute you contacted me. And I said, your message to me does not justify the means that you use to deliver that message. They just kept saying over and over again, but the message, but the message, look at these people, they're so happy. And I said, how do you know those people are happy? They're probably embarrassed. We found out that Kumari wasn't who he said he was from someone else. When we actually ran into her, she told us that it was all a hoax and they duped us and they punked us. One of the things that I think I felt most angry about was that we never received a call from anybody with the information that we had missed. The conclusion that I really came to was that the work that I had done with Kumari was of value regardless of the person that he was or wasn't as it had turned out. I liked Kumari as the person and the person that I was seeing was Vikram. He may have been talking with an accent and dressed in different kinds of clothes, but like he was still the same person, which I think is what allowed me to actually become friends with Vikram despite everything. He is a friend of yours? Yeah, that's fair to say. He actually was the officiant at, um, at our wedding. So yeah, we are definitely pretty close with Vikram. Would you treat a friend the way Kumare treated you? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, the reality of the situation is that he wasn't completely honest with us, but Kumari was nothing but friendly and loving towards us. He was the listening ear that I think so many people desperately crave. Vikram, if someone came to you and said, I get where you're coming from with this, but I feel like I was manipulated for a project, how would you answer them? The only thing I can say is that I never took anything lightly. To me, the hardest thing to hear is when somebody is just focused on whether I'm a good person or not. That doesn't matter. Vikram Gandhi is an acclaimed filmmaker. Among other things, he recently released the film Barry about the formative years of Barack Obama. The original score for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Nick Vanderkolk. Now, I want you to understand something about Snap. The same folk that you hear being demonized everywhere the Muslims, the immigrants, the brown, the trans, the queer, the imprisoned, the decrepit, the forgotten, the odd. Snappers, you're going to meet them as human beings on this show. We're proud of that. We're proud of that. You be proud of it as well. Donate now. Become a snapper at snapjudgment.org and help us spread love one story at a time. Snapjudgment.org. 
Spread love. Spread your love. Spread our love. One story at a time. The world needs it. Snapjudgment.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the bad magic episode, where we know that several types of mysteries still wander amongst us, and the deepest magic, it lives in the land of the deepest enmity. Snap Judgment's favorite, Jonathan Grobert, has a story. In April of 1996, I went to Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. The war in Bosnia had only just come to an end, and my wife, Dragana, who is from Bosnia, went to see her family there for the first time in four years. And the atmosphere in Belgrade itself was charged. Slobodan Milosevic was still in power, the old Yugoslavia was dead, and war was in the air. And there I was, a tourist in a city on the edge of an abyss. Dragana's two cousins, Sramika and Goza, decided that I should see something of their city. So off we went to what they claimed was the largest Orthodox church in the Balkans. This city had once been rich, but now it was poor, desperate, slightly beaten, and it seemed to me resigned to more beatings. The people looked busy, they went to work, they went to cafes, but they also looked, they looked lost. And there it was, Saint Sava. It's heaving domes, not really elegant, just very, very big. And it looked closed. I mean, could we go in? We found an open gate and walked to the little vicary next to the church. And there was a painfully thin young man of about 25. He was sitting, reading a newspaper, and his white shirt was transparent with sweat. He said his name was Slobo. And Goza and Svermika told Slobo I was a visiting American and that we wanted a tour of the church. Slobo said he spoke English and unsmilingly led us inside for what was a big surprise. This, the largest and most magnificent Orthodox church in the Balkans, was an empty shell. It seems that they've been trying to finish the church for the last 80 years or so, but every time they were just about to start up, war would break out and they'd have to stop. Slobo robotically led us through the building, and then he led us out. And as we passed the vicary, he turned and strangely dropped his formality. He said... You guys want a drink? Um, sure. We sat at the table of a large room and were given tiny glasses of powerful plum brandy, Slivovitz, and Slobo looked at me and asked, do you play the piano? No, sorry, well, I do, he said, and he walked over to the upright piano next to the table, and then he started to play. The music was both joyous and sad, And my wife and cousin started singing along with Slobo, word for word. And then he said, Do you know this song from the mountains of Macedonia? And they did. And they sang. And they drank. And off came Slobo's jacket. And then he said, Do you know this old Bosnian drinking song? And they did. And they drank. And they stood on their chairs with their arms in the air. And off came Slobo's tie. And they kept on singing and dancing and drinking and laughing. And then Slobo stopped playing. 
He twisted around, looked at me hard and said, Do you know we had the best country in the world? We had freedom and money, but we didn't have to work like dogs like you in the West. We had good lives and we destroyed it. Do you know I am not even from Belgrade? I'm from Croatia. I was here when the war started and I got stuck. I am from Dalmatia. Do you know this old Dalmatian fisherman's song? And he started to play. They knew the song, and they sang, and they drank until they wept. And they all wept for the country they had lost. The Croat, the Serb, and the Bosnian all wept, for they were no longer countrymen. And yet they were, at least for tonight, still bound by the memory of what was and what could have been. And by this music, they were all singing as if they were the last Yugoslavs on earth. The amazing Jonathan Gobert. Now, Snapper, you there with the headphones on. You're listening to a Snap Judgment fundraising episode. You are doing that. What does it say about you? It says that Snap storytelling, the storytelling you love, needs you to step up. Donate right now at snapjudgment.org, snapjudgment.org, and spread love one story at a time. Snapjudgment.org. <laughs> 